Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Elizabeth Emery, professor of modern languages and literature, Montclair State University, explores the French engagement with the medieval period in the years 1870 to 1914. She examines this French medievalism, the post-medieval engagement with medieval things, through paintings, history textbooks for children, and popular World's Fair attractions and memorabilia. Through this multimedia presentation, she helps contextualize the late 19th century French passion for medieval motifs that so influenced American visitor Senator William A. Clark that he returned to Washington with many treasures, including Boutet de Montville's Jeanne d'Arc paintings, now on display in the National Gallery of Art. This lecture was given on December 12, 2018, as part of an expert panel on French medievalism at the turn of the 20th century by examining the particular cases of Boutet de Montville's Jeanne d'Arc book and paintings devoted to Joan of Arc and the greater phenomenon of medievalism during the Belle Epoque. Uh, I think that by this time, as I'm sort of closing out the session, Nora and Willa have beautifully demonstrated that figures from medieval history and legend, Joan of Arc, jugglers, Les Quatre Fils Aimants, were extraordinarily popular at the end of the 19th century in France and in the United States, and that they were often exported to the, to the United States by upper-class tourists like Mark Twain. This is an advertisement here for his Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc, uh, a novel serialized in Harper's in 1895, so right about the same time that Boutet de Montvelle is publishing his book illustrations. As Nora has also shown, Senator William Clark went even further. Here he is. After seeing Boutet de Montvelle's work at the 1900 World's Fair, he commissioned the variants of the Jones series, and I might add a, a possible explanation. He had two young daughters who were Joan of Arc mad, which may also explain why he commissioned them. In fact, they were booked on the Titanic, coming back from the maiden voyage from New York to, uh, to France, to see the 500-year celebration of Joan of Arc's birth in France. Um, Henry Adams, coincidentally, was also booked on the same uh, trip that didn't go because the they met the Titanic uh, survivors. At any rate, the, the um, Boutet de Montvelle series was so well known in the United States that when Hemingway wrote A Movable Feast, he drew upon these images to describe Gertrude Stein's companion, Alice B. Toklas, as resembling Boutet's Joan with her short haircut. <laughs> so here we have them. Uh, I've been asked to provide a bit of context for this turn-of-the-century fascination for all things medieval. So what I'd like to do is to evoke some of the major social and cultural changes that took place at the end of the century to make French and American medievalism, the post-medieval taste for the Middle Ages, as Jan said, uh, a very popular thing on both sides of the Atlantic. So what I'd like to do is, is, is evoke some of the items on display in the Juggling the Middle Ages exhibit at Dumbarton Oaks. So, if you haven't been, this will give you some context for visiting. And notably, books for children and adolescents penned by Victor Hugo, The Hunchback of Notre Dame from 1831, French architect Violet le Duc, The History of a Town Hall and a Cathedral, and American historian Henry Adams, Mont Saint-Michel and Chartres, uh, from 1904. Uh, so before getting to these examples, I'll backtrack and repeat what you've already heard a little bit about the very important nature of the French defeat to the Prussians in the 1870 Franco-Prussian War, the occupation of Paris, 
And then the 1871 civil war known as La Commune, which provoked the death of some 20,000 or so Parisian rebels. The number is actually still in dispute, interestingly enough. So these social rifts, the deux France that, that Nora and Willa both mentioned, ex uh, put the democratically minded républicains against the conservative Catholics and royalist sympathizers. And so Joan of Arc becomes a peasant who becomes a national military hero by following saintly voices and supporting the king. It has great crossover appeal for both left and right. Uh, as each side battled to claim her as their own. To just give you an example of this claiming Joan of Arc, writer Emile Zola complained bitterly in a newspaper article that priests were taking a remarkable national hero and turning her into an average, an average pious maiden. <laughs> and uh, Nora showed us this image from Bouté de Montvel's showing the, the kinds of same tensions as you can see the great dismay, the disdain for the lower classes, the dirty, Christ figure with you know, his bare feet and his knife and bottle of wine, uh, and the fact that they would then withdraw this from the salon to avoid social uprise. So in order to make amends for this bloodshed, 20,000 workers killed, the Catholics undertook a nationwide subscription to build the Romano-Byzantine Sacré-Cœur Basilica in Paris. It was a national vow, un vœu national, a place of prayer and pilgrimage as an act of reparation for the appalling bloodshed. And the Basilica's role as a national vow and pilgrimage stop is fairly clear, I think, in this 1900 postcard, where it was sent from a pilgrim to his brother en route to Lourdes. And given the national mourning over the commune and the recent rise of power by the very Republicans who supported improving the rights of working class, the painting was, of course, particularly shocking. So we're having these, these tensions between left and right that continue through the 1890s, the period of the growing interest in medievalism. And so one of the results of these tensions is as French legislators passed laws creating free secular public education in the early 1880s, the rewriting of history for children and adolescents becomes a primary focus of nationalism. As you can see here in the children book pub children's book publisher, Jean Massé's call to arms through education. So you have here his, the logo for country by the book, by the sword. French historians argue that medieval history in particular needed to be reassessed, although it had long been assumed that the French monarchy was descended from the Germanic invaders of the fifth century. After the war, the French began producing new research showing that the Gallo-Roman French people had never been conquered. They'd simply coexisted in a multi-ethnic nation. So as a result, these historians recommended drawing new attention to historical episodes where the allegedly strong lower classes played an important role, arguing that it would boost French morale. Suddenly, a brand new history of the French lower classes began to emerge next to the prevailing beliefs about kings and queens. Medieval characters like Joan of Arc, she's peasant, she's also a mystic and a warrior. Medieval monuments like cathedrals, religious edifice, historical monument, or even lowly figures like Victor Hugo's secular juggler uh, character, Pierre Gringoire in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, were the, all these figures were appropriated in children's textbooks to support the political or religious aims of each side. So Nora and Willa have given us numerous examples of how this took place in illustrated bibliophile editions and paintings. So I'd like to give another example penned by a fairly unlikely source, 
architect Viollet-le-Duc, who's 1878, so just after the war, uh, the book seen here, is on display in the Juggling the Middle Ages exhibit. So the story behind this book is that in 1878, the Etzel Publishing Company, which was started with Jean Massé, the same who had the, for the country, by the book, by the sword, uh, Viollet's book is advertised for the Christmas market. Uh, the 274-page volume, so these were very good adolescent readers in 1878, uh, they, they include 71 illustrations and tell the story of the fictional French city of Clusy from the Germanic invasions, this very same 5th century invasion, through the French Revolution. And as the title suggests, the fate of the town's two major architectural structures, a town hall and a cathedral, lay at the heart of all of these different events. The book is a, a great mix of historical overview of political debate, architectural analysis, and animated fictional passages where violence, bloodshed, and revolt pit the bravery of the local heroes against the tyranny of French nobles and the invaded forces. So here, you have here an example of the mayor of Clusy arguing that it's a national monument, it shouldn't be destroyed. Now this was the last book published by Viollet-le-Duc in his lifetime, and it contains his final word on the cathedral, its construction, and its social function, all presented in a form that appealed to adolescents and their parents. His resolutely secular emphasis on the cathedral as a structure built by the people for the people reprised Hugo's point about religious architecture in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. For Hugo, religious architecture was a kind of writing in stone, freedom of the press, a document of artistic production crucial for understanding French history. So I think this gives you a sense of the highly patriotic debates about the importance of education and particularly about teaching French children about medieval history in order to protect French cultural heritage from foreign invaders. And I think the story of Viver carrying the coffins back is just horrific. Um, but it explains why Joan of Arc, who drove the English from France, became such a figure of predilection, a popularity that would then lead to her canonization as Saint Joan of Arc in this period. So in 1920, she's canonized. Thanks to the push of Jean Massé, Etzel, and others, French literacy rates had expanded to nearly 95% by 1900. So this gives you a sense of the market for the books we've been seeing. Integrating the Middle Ages into the school curriculum created an effect of supply and demand, leading to the commission of new scholarly and popular editions of medieval French literature and new books about French art and history that we've been discussing. Medievalist Léon Gautier had despaired in the early 1870s about ever seeing the Song of Roland, another story about chasing out a foreign invader. Uh, he thought it would never be taught alongside the classics. And yet, just a few years after the Franco-Prussian War, he was invited to prepare an edition for schoolchildren. He called the, French, the, the work the French Iliad, and it spawned many translations, including the illustrated one here by Isabel Butler uh, on display in the Dumbarton Oaks, Oaks exhibit. So since the, the 1880s, children were constantly reading about Roland, Joan of Arc. Families could study medieval objects in cathedrals, whose cultural significance and symbolism was explained in publications like those of Viollet-le-Duc, and in the many newly opened public exhibits dedicated to medieval art in Paris, including, for the first time, a medieval section at the Louvre, and this is in 1893. So this painting was not hung there, but I'm putting up more Joan of Arc. Uh, Gaston Paris's popular lectures for the Collège de France, um, this will be, I think, what Michel Zinck will discuss a bit tomorrow at his lecture, 
the medieval works published by the Société des Anciens Textes Français made medieval works accessible to a great number of readers, as did popular early music concerts by the Les Chanteurs de Saint-Gervais, which was established in 1892, the Scola Cantorum of Paris from 1894, uh, and many, many, many operas with medieval plots, such as Massenet's Griselidis, uh, an engraving of which is also on display at, at De Martin Oaks just now. As an increasingly literate populace, read modern French versions of medieval text in school or at home, or studied medieval objects in museums, libraries, listened to concerts, the French began to look more carefully at the medieval structures in their hometowns, and they wanted to know more about life in the past. So such curiosity about local and national heritage led to the creation of what would become one of the most popular events, as Willa noted, of the 1900 World's Fair, the Living History Old Paris Display. Oop, there's Griselle. Here we go. The, um, the old Paris display created by author and illustrator Albert Robida. So it's an entire neighborhood constructed along the banks of the Seine, a large section of which at the beginning is dedicated to the Middle Ages. The, you would enter here and proceed through, the, through time. In this village, there was a recreated Gothic church. Saint-Julien de Ménétrier was destroyed uh, by the time by 1900, but initially it was founded by a troop of medieval tumblers as a hospice for their injured brethren. Within the exhibit, costumed actors circulated among the visitors speaking what sounded like old French and putting on juggling and musical shows. I have a couple of pictures and postcards here. So as a result, some 51 million international visitors discovered the remarkable accomplishments of the French Middle Ages, reinvented and advertised to the world through popular culture. Not only could they see recreated French architectural structures, and this is the interior of the church, but they could purchase a program enumerating the history of each of these buildings. They could also select and send the postcards that you've seen here in addition to fans and other merchandise still circulating actively on eBay. You can still collect it, it's not too late. Um, if you're interested more, volume three of Jan Zolkowski's new book has quite a few more images of this wonderful exhibit. And, um, one more collectible was the Gazette of Old Paris. And so coming back to Willa's comments about style and paper, that each issue presented a different era of French history with a look and special paper, a Merovingian style, uh, each intended to evoke the period. We have here Gallo-Roman and uh, Saint-Louis, Saint Louis, but Joan of Arc was, of course, a featured topic. So this penchant for the Middle Ages at a fair dedicated to celebrating the triumphs of industry is quite remarkable, as Willa noted. And I think it's quite easy to put it down to escapism, citing American historian Henry Adams, who, while visiting the fair, was both attracted to and repelled by the dynamos, these motors we see here in the gallery of machines. He felt as though they advanced relentlessly into the future without regard for human history. And although he doesn't mention having visited Old Paris, his letters reveal that he repeatedly sought refuge from this confusing modern fair by hiding in the Middle Ages, by visiting Notre Dame de Chartres, about which he would later write a book, which he called A Historical Romance of the 12th Century. And he addressed it to his nieces. Um, Montsaint Michel and Chartres, see here, uh, which is also on display at the Juggling the Middle Ages exhibit. 
So Le Vieux Paris, with its medieval chapel, its carefully cataloged history, must have prevented a similar escape for other fair attendees who were bewildered by the overwhelming abundance of modern achievements. And yet, in addition to the entertainment value and the aggressive commercialism, the display was also carefully calculated by Robida as an experiential history lesson. It was advertised, for example, to younger readers, as here. Uh, uh, the Le Petit Français Illustré was established in 1889 as part of the same pedagogical venture behind Violet Le Duc's cathedral book. Robida painstakingly researched and constructed the exhibit as amusing and educational based on research into real Parisian monuments that no longer existed. So it was kind of a, re a, a resurrection of the past. Robida, like Hugo and like Viollet-le-Duc, was at the vanguard of a new breed of medievalists that believed so firmly in the importance of making the public aware of medieval French accomplishments that they would use any methods available, even appeals to the lower classes and children, to gain support for something they saw as really critical for rebuilding French pride after the war. And Gautier expressed the sentiment most clearly, as he said, you know, one must not scorn the general public at the risk of being abandoned by it, and it's particularly important not to transform science into some kind of obscure temple where only priests have the right to enter. Everything, everything must be arranged to assure the decisive triumph of our national epic. Everything, including La Bibliothèque Bleu books for children and Image d'Epinal for country folk and the uneducated. Everything, including tales and alphabets for children. Let us reach out to all ages and to all classes. I think this is actually very resonant today where we think of art museums and universities as the, 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 the obscure temporal. Well, it's not. And so more outreach is good, more discussion. But as you can see from these kinds of quotations, the most important aspect of medievalism in this period and the element that distinguishes it most clearly from that of earlier monuments is the extent to which the Middle Ages was shared through popular culture. After the Franco-Prussian War, scholars reached out to a public that, like Robida himself, he left school at the age of 12, and yet he did all of the research to build this city. The, the public now had the tools, the education, to undertake its own studies of France's history. They expressed their enthusiasm for stories, characters from the Middle Ages, in many media we've seen today, books, prints, paintings, sculpture, jewelry, music, bookbinding. The symbiotic relationship between high and low culture, between popular and academic manifestations of medieval, went hand in hand, one complementing and feeding the other. Far from diminishing interest in the Middle Ages, such, a, uh, such attention exponentially increased the period's reputation as a time of cultural innovation. So the Middle Ages, not as the Dark Ages, but as, as Jan Zilkowski calls it, a bright, a bright period. So I think that, um, the, this exhibit at Dumbarton Oaks about the juggler of Our Lady is much in this tradition. It continues a tradition of connecting past to present and showing the appeal over nine centuries of a simple story about a small act of artistic devotion. And so in concluding, I'm, I'm hoping that this overview of the, the educational system, the historical moment, will give you a good sense of how to situate some of these beautiful books and prints we've seen today, which are the product of a veritable fusion of interest in the Middle Ages that accompanied the French rediscovery of its own medieval past. As the French discover the past, but also as upper-class upper American tourists increasingly visited France and stayed there for extended periods, 
They too promoted the excellence of medieval French history and cultural heritage by publishing their own translations of French works or their own variations on histories, like Mark Twain's personal recollections of Joan of Arc. They also imported medieval French art by the crate, as did J.P. Morgan in New York, Senator Clark, who commissioned the Bouté de Montvelle uh, illustrations now hanging here. Others, like Henry Adams, wrote texts like Mont Saint-Michel and Chartres, which mixes personal essay with travel literature, thus encouraging even more American visitors to learn about medieval French art. Uh, or to discover French texts like Robida, the inventor of Vieux Paris, who also wrote a number of travel guides. As the invention of the motor car made faraway destinations, little changed since the Middle Ages, available and accessible to wealthy tourists, even more artists and writers like Edith Wharton, here we have Edith Wharton in her motor car in 1908, they too generated beautiful new books about medieval French history and culture. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.